I'm Joanne Guarnieri Hickmeyer, and I'm a member of New Hope Chapel's teaching team. I am delighted that you joined us this morning as we head into the Gospel of John, chapter 4. Let's pray. Oh Lord, thank you for this passage about the woman in Samaria. And we ask that you would give us fresh insight and wisdom and understanding in how to live out the truths found in her story. We pray it to the praise for grace. Amen. Now, ordinarily, for most Judeans of Jesus' day, if they wanted to go to Galilee, they took the long way around, six days on foot instead of two, so they would not have to go through Samaria. For nearly 500 years, the Judeans and the Samaritans had been opposed to each other with an active antipathy. From antiquity, the Samaritans had become a mix of Israelites and at least half a dozen other ethnic groups. Consequently, they also had a mixed religion, kept only to the first five books of the Hebrew Bible as scripture, and they worshipped five other deities besides Yahweh. So imagine the disciples' growing alarm as they realized the route that Jesus was taking. When they got to Jacob's famous well, Jesus sat down to rest, and the disciples went into the nearest town, happened to be Sychar, to go buy some food. And as they walked into town, they might have noticed a lone woman with her water jug coming out of the city gate. There already was a well in town, but this woman was walking the extra half mile out of town into the heat of the midday sun. Now, most commentators logically conclude that the woman wanted to avoid other people because she had what is euphemistically referred to as a reputation. And like most everyone else, I bought into that general idea that she was a loose woman who had gotten herself into trouble and was therefore something of a social pariah. That is to say, until one afternoon when I was looking through a church cookbook and my husband came to look over my shoulder. And then he pointed to a name at the top of one of the pages. You know, that lady has been married three times. And he said it in just the right kind of insinuating voice. I, of course, responded exactly the way he hoped. I had my eyes wide open. I gasped. I clutched at my pearls. No! I mean, after all, this was a church recipe book from a small town from Midwest America. Oh, yes, he said, grinning from ear to ear. She's my grandma. Well, egg on my face. So what really happened? Well, the first husband of David's grandmother had died young and unexpectedly of a heart attack. Her second husband had gotten cancer earlier in their marriage, and her third husband, who also eventually left her a widow, had been even older than she was when they got married. He eventually died of old age. So I have reimagined how this woman would have honorably lost five husbands, and why she might be living with a man who was not her husband, and how the pain of those experiences might have etched deeply into her soul. Uh, she could have been sold as an indentured servant and given to the family's son, then sent away. She could have lost a husband through illness or age or accident. Once widowed, she could have been sent away because no child had been born. Or she could have been divorced without her consent. That happened all the time in that day. She could have been taken on as a secondary wife for the purpose of producing children, then sent away if barren, because up until about the 4th century A.D., Polygamy was practiced in Samaria, and finally she might have been taken in as a slave. The woman walked towards the well, did not know who Jesus was. All she could see was a young man, clearly Jewish. 
but the sun was blazing down on them both, and the man was clearly hot and thirsty, so I picture her drawing water and pouring him a drink, even as she asked him how he could possibly be willing to drink water from Samaria, from a Samaritan cup poured from a Samaritan jug by a Samaritan woman. It was not a secret how Judeans saw Samaritans. And I think the Samaritan woman was unprepared for Jesus' answer. If you had perceived the gift of God, and who is the one saying to you, supply a drink for me, you would ask it of him, and he would have granted to you living water. Now, living water in ancient times meant fresh running water, which remained healthy and pure, like a fountain bubbling up through the rocks from some deep artesian source. Sire, she said, intrigued and puzzled, you do not have a thing to draw with, and the well is deep. Now, maybe she let that statement hang in the air between them for a heartbeat. So, maybe she looked around him and then raised her hands in sort of a questioning manner. Where do you have the living water? And they both understood that this was a fair question. Maybe she began to warm to her theme. She was feeling defensive about the especially good quality of water that Jesus was drinking right now. Water that she herself had drawn for him in the heat of the day, offering him hospitality, even across the barrier of hostility that existed between her people and his people. You are not greater or mightier than our forebear Jacob, who bestowed the well to us he also himself drank out of, as well as his sons and his cattle. Though she had kept speaking on the earthly plane about fresh, bubbling water, her question touched on more. She was on the fold of a new dimension, the possibility only faint, but the implication profound. Reaching across that fold, she opened the way for revelation, and Jesus, discerning her inner being, continued on the spiritual plane. All who drink from this water will be thirsty again. And Jesus must have lifted up the cup she had given him and took a drink and then set it down on the well, its source. But everyone who drinks from the water of which I myself will bestow to them, and here I see Jesus lifting up the hand that once had held his cup and now placing it on his chest. This one, Jesus then lifted his other hand to reach out to the woman, indicating she was the one he meant, will not be thirsty into eternity. And perhaps Jesus let that statement hang between them for a heartbeat. But rather, and I think his voice filled with excitement and promise, the water that I give to them will become in them a fountain of water springing up into eternal life. Now there was no missing the metaphor. Living water was something Jesus bestowed that would spiritually enliven the person receiving it and living it out. The spring of living water would be inside her and she would have a fresh source of life-giving water day and night for all eternity. Now, you and I know Jesus was talking about the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit of God was certainly familiar to the Samaritan woman, because in her scriptures, God bestowed the Spirit only upon those who had been called to a special work for the Lord. And now the fold began to unfurl the pure light of truth spreading rays of hope from within the new dimension being revealed. And I imagine Jesus gave her time to process what he was saying to her. And after some thought, the woman answered. Now my guess is 
As she was speaking, she was thinking about the tragedies and sorrows she had experienced in life and about the many times she had encountered rejection and hunger and despair and shame and misuse. I imagine her yearning for the joyful upwelling this strange kind man was speaking of. With his deep soul perception, Jesus responded in a voice that must have moved through her like a sudden flood. Go on. Call your husband and come back here. She must have felt so exposed and shocked. And they were now at the nitty-gritty, all the cards on the table. But she would not lie. And I see her mentally pulling herself together. Her life was her life. And what dignity she had, she would draw around herself. I do not have a husband. And maybe she looked Jesus square in the eye as she said it. And of all the voices Jesus could have used in his answer, I am convinced he chose compassion and empathy and gentleness and the kind of love that feels like affection. Jesus spoke straight into the wounds of her life, the places that so deeply needed healing, because that is the effect of living water, cleansing and restoration. Jesus knew what was standing in the way of this woman moving from temporary satisfaction to true heart satisfaction. It was the whole point of bringing up her living arrangement. She was trying to find her heart's rest and the sense of significance that we all need in relationships. And so many of us do. We lose our identity and sense of self as we search for soulmates, trying to become whoever it is the other person wants us to be. But each of the woman's marriages had taught her broken heart that human relationships can never truly satisfy spiritual longing and without mindfulness can seep away the courage to be who God made us to be. And Jesus gently drew out what had been keeping her back. You spoke truly that I do not have a husband. And it was not accusatory, not from Jesus. He had come to heal, not to hurt. Rather, it was affirming. She had made a wise and honest choice in her words. In the rightest sense, she was indeed alone. And her refusal to stoop to deception or manipulation to get what she now so thirsted for showed exquisite character and spirituality. Jesus' next words may have raised the hair on her neck and draw a gasp from her lips. For you had five husbands. And now the one you have is not your husband. The words were surely hard to hear. But the gentle voice that spoke them, I'm convinced, was warm with compassion, and the deep eyes that held hers were kind. This you have spoken truly. You see, again Jesus had affirmed her. He was a lover of truth, an admirer of those who spoke the truth. She didn't feel judged. She felt suddenly seen. Here was one who could truly behold her true self, who accepted her for who she truly was, who admired her character and honored her dignity, who understood the fortitude it took for her to choose truth when it held the potential to hurt her, or to render her disqualified to receive the gift this man had to give. You see, already living water had begun to flow through her by the power of God. Jesus understood her loneliness and her fear of what growing old would mean, especially as a widow in first-century Palestine. She knew that her search for acceptance and self-worth and love had been crushed time and again. Now, this is not to say she was completely without fault, 
Who of us can ever claim that? But it is to say that in every heart there are wrongs etched in by others that warp us just as surely as the wrongs we ourselves commit. Because she did not feel judged, but rather perfectly and truly known and loved, the woman came closer, stepping fully into this new spiritual dimension that Jesus, the light of the world, was opening up to her. The only prophet Samaritans had ever believed was Moses. As far as they were concerned, there would only be one more prophet. The prophet Moses had prophesied about the Messiah. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people, and you shall heed such a prophet. That's from Deuteronomy. But here Jesus was obviously a prophet. Sire, I perceive that you are a prophet. Now John used the Greek word for something someone observes and perceives. One of the examples in the lexicon is of an ambassador gone to receive an oracle. Fully in the light, the woman was able to see with her inner vision what had been dancing around the edges of her spiritual sight. It was a stunning moment. And then came a tumble of questions. What about our holy mountain? Have we been wrong after all? Is Judaism right then? And Jesus explained that the question of whose mountain was right was soon going to be irrelevant. The Samaritans did have some truth, but it was mixed with error. But the important thing is that true worship is done in the human spirit. True worship comes from the heart. It is not something we do while our minds are somewhere else. God is spirit, and so are you and me, in our innermost being. Worship is the human spirit meeting God's spirit, a communion which is an intimate union. And that can only happen for someone who's been born anew, born from above. Truth is transparency with God, and it's also meeting God through Jesus Christ, who is the truth. So I see Jesus looking up at this point, as the disciples are almost upon them, just yards away, and she also knows her time alone with the prophet is coming to a close. I perceive, I know, she said, that Messiah comes, who is being called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare to us absolutely all things. Jesus' response reveals the depth and breadth of this woman's intellect and her spiritual understanding and her attunement to both God and God's word, the scriptures, because he said, I am the one who is speaking to you. The words that John recorded Jesus as having said at this point are just as I translated them right here. Jesus spoke out loud the holiest of names, I am of God. Yahweh. It is the boldest claim yet in John's gospel, and it was made to one of the lowliest people of Jesus' day. Now, you would have thought Jesus would have saved this incredible revelation for someone who could really appreciate it, like a Nicodemus, or at least his disciples, or at the very least a Jewish man of some kind. The rabbis of that day had a saying, it's better that the words of the law be burned than to be delivered to a woman. Not that everyone saw it that way, but nevertheless, in that patriarchal society, women were definitely second tier, and the Samaritans didn't even have a tier in the Jewish mind. They were decidedly outside of the in-group. But the way John told this story, and the timing of things was very important to John, it was at that very moment of the woman's statement about the coming Messiah and Jesus' declaration of Yahweh, I am the very one speaking to you right now, that the disciples arrived. And during this came his disciples, 
and they were marveling that he, Jesus, was speaking with a woman. Yet not a one said, What do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? Now, did you catch that question? What do you seek? Remember I said to watch out, it's going to show up again. To a man, the disciples would not, could not, bring themselves to ask the woman what she was seeking. Nor did they ask Jesus why he was breaking with every tradition and cultural moray by speaking alone with a woman and a Samaritan woman at that. The last time this question had been asked, remember, was in chapter 1. It had been in Jesus' voice, the very first words he had spoken in John's gospel to Andrew and John when they left the Baptist's side to follow Jesus. And remember, it was a Hebraism, and it meant something like, What are you looking for in life? What are you looking for from me? In a spiritual sense. Now, in this highly curated and poetically written book, every single word counts. There are no extra words, and there are no random words. John meant very much for that question to show up here in just this way. This is the question all of us are to answer at some point as we read this gospel. What are we looking for? And what are we looking for from Jesus? And here's what I think. I think the disciples heard this last part of the conversation at Jacob's well. I think they heard the woman's spiritual insight and they heard Jesus' revelation. And I think they saw the very powerful miracle of belief happening before their very eyes. And I think they realized to the marrow of their bones, to the roots of their hair and the soles of their feet, that Jesus had accepted and indeed, if it were possible, anointed a new disciple. I think they did not know, and more importantly, did not dare ask whether she was going to be added to their number. In her own exultation, the woman left her water jar and ran back to the town of Sychar to tell the Messiah had come. What did that mean? Did John mean it to symbolize her old life, having to walk a half mile each way every day to get water, sweet as it was, that would not last? Or maybe leaving her water jar symbolized her trust in Jesus with the things of her life. I mean, after all, he'd proven that he knew everything about her, but instead of condemning her, he loved her and entrusted his revelation of himself to her, and she knew she was coming back, and that Jesus would be there taking care of her water jug for her. Or did leaving her jug symbolize repentance, putting down her old life and taking up the new eternal life that Jesus offered her? Or maybe her water jar was a gift to Jesus and the disciples that they could refresh themselves at Jacob's well while they had their lunch. When the woman came pounding into Sikar's market square, she immediately declared, Come behold the person who recounted to me everything and all I have done. Is it at all possible this one is the Christ? You see, the Samaritans called the prophesied Messiah Tahav, the revealer. And of course, the townspeople were immediately captivated. In that same moment, I imagine Jesus gathering his disciples around him and saying, Do you not say that after four months, then the harvest comes? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes. And I see Jesus pointing his hand physically towards Sychar. Look carefully, the fields that are white for reaping already. For it had only been a little while, just an hour or so, 
and not four months, since the woman had returned to the village, and as he said these words, more and more people appeared coming through the town gate, some running, some walking quickly, many in the natural undyed garments of simple folk, and they indeed must have looked like a movable white field, ripe for the harvest. For in this the saying is true, that one is the sowing and another reaping. I myself sent you all to reap, which you all have not labored for. Others have labored, and you all into their labors have entered. Who had done the labor of sending the entire town out to Jacob's well to learn from them? Who had been the sower Jesus was speaking of, whose harvest was clearly a hundredfold? Who was the apostle to Samaria? The epilogue to this one woman's willingness to run back and tell her village about Jesus is of spiritual revival in Samaria, found in Luke's account of the early church in Acts 8. So why did Jesus decide to walk through Samaria and sit at Jacob's well? Because he had a spiritual appointment to keep with a woman who may have thought she had little to offer anyone and was of little worth to anyone. She had two deep-seated, God-given longings. The first longing was to be truly and completely known and accepted, to be fully understood and loved, to be treated gently with warmth and respect, and to have her own love fully received with joy and delight. And her second longing was to know that her life was worth something, that she had meaning and purpose in the world, that who she was and what she did mattered. And welling up within her came a fountain of living water that flowed out into all Samaria. O oh Lord, thank you for knowing us and loving us completely and for giving our lives meaning. Please help us to find the courage to answer your call in our lives and to live out the purpose you have for each of us. To the praise of your grace. Amen.